Happy Easter! How you guys doing? Come on, you guys excited to be here? I'm excited. Great to be here. Think about this for a second. A year ago, we could not meet for Easter, and here we are packing it out, honoring the Lord. Doesn't it feel great? So great to have you here. I want to say a quick hello to all of our campuses. Thanks for being a part of our services today. Let's also give it up for our God Behind Bars men and women who watch us every single week. Thanks for being a part of our services. We still have people watching online, of course, locally, but also all around the world. We appreciate you guys being a part of our services as well. I'm so fired up today to talk to you guys about a doubter's guide to Easter. You say, well, no, but I don't doubt. I'm good. I mean, I know that Christ rose again, and so I'm great. That's awesome. We're glad that you have that kind of confidence. But sometimes there's some days we don't. Sometimes there's some moments we have maybe a friend or a family member come, come up to us and start kind of drilling us down with some questions and kind of makes you step back like, well, I mean, I, I believe in Jesus, but you're making me kind of wonder. I mean, listen to all these questions. And so it's easy to have doubts. Maybe you're like Thomas in the Bible, that he was a follower of Christ. He believed in Jesus and, 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 and he believed he was the Messiah, but then he still he still had some doubts. Or maybe, just maybe, you were dragged to church today by a loving grandmama or a mama who's making you come to church with them because you're, you know, your family, so you, you got the whole guilt thing. You're like, you're coming. You're coming to Easter, you know. And so you're here, and you really don't believe that Christ rose again. Well, today I want to do something different. Today's message is not just simply about the resurrection, but I want to bolster your confidence in the resurrection itself. And so we're going to do something a little different today. I want to talk, rather than just dip into the whole story of how Christ died and rose again, I want to talk about how it is a historical fact, and I want to give you evidence that Christ really rose again. Does that sound good? Can we do that today? It's kind of a different angle. It's going to be fun. Well, one thing we do here at Church Unlimited, we always start off with our mission statement. So what are we here to do as a church? We're here to take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. That's what we're all about here at Church Unlimited. Again, thanks for being here. You guys look great, by the way. Everyone's got your Easter best on, so great to have you guys with us. Thanks so much. And uh, I know the new style ladies is a little house in the prairie thing. I got it. I got the, the memo. So my wife is like, this looks good. I was like, it looks great. You look like you're ready to go to little house of prairie right now. And she was just like, this is the style. I was like, okay, I know that. I get it. It's okay. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys are with us. And as we talk about this, I want to dive into a couple key scriptures right at the beginning, and then we're going to go from there. The first one is in Mark chapter 9. Jesus actually said openly that he was going to die and he was going to raise again. Check out the scripture. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. I love the honesty that they're like, I don't know what he just said, but I don't like it. So I don't even want to ask about it. So they, they loved Jesus. They didn't want him to die. They're like, whoa, what are you talking about? We don't want you to die. But it was all a part of the plan was to give his life for all of us and then raise a new life. I want to show you another key scripture, and then we're going to bounce off of this key scripture. It's in John chapter 20. This is after Jesus died, after he rose again, he goes to see his disciples. And I don't know if you know this, but he saw them about 12 different times. So multiple times he saw people after he had died, and he was walking around talking to people. He had, he had dinner with people. I mean, it, it, he, was, he was still teaching people. So this is after he had rose again. And here's one of those incidents. This is where Thomas gives us his truth. He tells us how he's really still doubting. Check it out. John, John chapter 20 says this. One of, this. one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. 
Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. Jesus appeared among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my wounds. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord, my God, Thomas exclaimed. I think it went more like this. My Lord, my God. Like, can you imagine? You saw him die on the cross, and here he is standing in front of you. And then Jesus said this. He said, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And that's what we're asked to do. We're asked to believe in Jesus without seeing him. But that doesn't mean just because we're asked to believe in him without seeing him that there's no evidence. There's actually lots of evidence. And so I want to give you some because whenever someone says to me, and I get this often, by the way, at least probably once or twice you know, a month I used to get it. Now probably three or four times a year I'll get this. Someone will come up to me and they'll say to me, Aren't you that preacher? You know, that's the first line they say. I don't know why that preacher. I don't know what that means. I'm sometimes nervous, like, what does that actually mean? I don't know if I want to ask. But aren't you that preacher? And I'm like, yeah, I, I probably am. I don't know what you're referring to, but uh, you got the preacher word right. And they'll say, yeah, I don't necessarily believe in all the stuff you believe. And here's a line I always say after that. I always say, based upon what? When they say, well, I don't really believe Jesus rose again. I say, well, based upon what? And they're always a little taken by that. Like, what? And I was like, well, do you have any reasons to believe, not, not to believe? Like, because I have reasons why I believe. I, I base what I believe on, on evidence. And they're always a little surprised. They say, well, why don't I believe the Bible? And I always say, well, okay, you can still believe Jesus rose again without believing the Bible. And that always takes them back. And they're like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, there's other documentation. That was not the only thing written about Jesus. If you rise again, other people are going to be talking about it. <laughs> it's kind of a common thing. If you rise again, that you're going to be talked about. Just to let you know. If you died this week and we see you walking around next week, we're going to be talking about it. Just to let you know. And so everyone in the whole world began to talk about this, and this is why Christianity spread so fast. So today I want to give you what I call the three tests of historicity. Any historical document has to go through these three, these three tests. When they find some new discovery, when they excavate some cave and they find something, and you know, they say, hey, we think this may have to do with King Tut. Okay, let's do the research. Let's, let's, let's study this. Let's look, look at what it says on it. What does that mean? Let's try to place the time of it. And so they, they run it through the three tests of historicity. Say with me, historicity. It's a big word. Historicity is the study of history. How do we get history? There are actually three tests that every historical document has to go through, and I think it's only fair that we run the Bible through the same three tests. We run the eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through the, through the tests of historicity to see if what they say will pass the test or not. So let's just dive right in. You guys ready? I'm ready to roll. Here we go. Here's the first test. The first test is called the external evidence test. This is the examination to see if other historical documents confirm or deny the internal testimony of the documents themselves. So it's the external evidence test. So how many of you guys watched the Super Bowl this last year? Did you guys watch it? Man, the Cowboys did awesome, did they not? <laughs> what? That's the game I remember. You don't remember that? Oh, they weren't in the game. See, that's the thing. If I were to write on my blog, I don't have a blog, but if I did, if I wrote, oh man, just watch the Cowboy game. It was awesome. They won the Super Bowl. It was incredible. People would be like, you're an idiot. You clearly didn't watch the game. They watched the game that you watched from their living room, just like you did. They were not in the Super Bowl, right? I mean, it's been years since the Cowboys have actually been in the Super Bowl. No offense, the Texans have never been, okay? So... But the point is, is that, you know, it would, be, it would not be true and it would be easy to disprove if I said that the Cowboys won the Super Bowl because someone would then hold up a, a Sports Illustrated and be like, see that guy? His name's Tom Brady. That guy won the Super Bowl. 
Tampa Bay ones, we have evidence. In fact, it wouldn't be just Sports Illustrated. You could hold up the Caller Times, the San Antonio Express, the Houston Chronicle, the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, the New York Times. I don't know which paper you open up. They're, they're all going to open up the sports section the day after Super Bowl and show you who won. And it wasn't the Cowboys. It wasn't the Chiefs. They were in it, but it still wouldn't be accurate. It was the Tampa Bay Bucks. Now, we could argue over how they won. And a lot of people do that. Oh, they clearly won because TB12, baby, Tom, Tom, man, he's the GOAT. I'm telling you, Tom Brady, he's the best. That's why they won. And someone else will say, hold up, not so fast. Bruce Arians is a great coach. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you see that defensive performance? They shut down Mahomes. I mean, I think they probably won the game. We could argue all day long about how they won, but I don't think anyone's going to argue who won. That was pretty clear. In other words, you're entitled to your opinions. You're just not entitled to your own facts. The facts are that Tampa Bay won. And so I'm not really going to get into what your opinion of Jesus is. Let's just establish, is there a fact? Did Jesus actually rise again or not? That's enough. Because if that's true, it changes everything. If it's false, then we're all wasting our time today. I mean, I appreciate your outfit. You look great. Take a picture. But Easter doesn't mean much if Jesus didn't rise again. But if Jesus did rise again, everything changes. Our whole lives change. Our whole world changes. Everything changes if he rose again. So let's just determine that fact. So let's look at some external evidence right now. This means people that wrote back in their day. So again, if I wrote, you know, on my blog or, or if I had a, my own little magazine or whatever and I wrote that, you know, that, that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl or the Cowboys, you know, there's just too much external evidence outside of my writing that says, no, that's not true. We all know who won the game. So who wrote at the same time in the first century about Jesus? What did they have to say about him? Check it out. Here's a couple of examples. This is Irenaeus. He's the Bishop of Lyons. This is 8180. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who had been a Christian for 86 years. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. Okay, that's a big deal. So let me just show you what we're talking about. So how many of you guys have a grandpa? Anybody got a grandpa? How many got a grandpa that tell lots of stories? I got one. Anybody? Yep. And they, they tend, how many have a grandpa that repeats their stories? Yep, right. <laughs> We'll do the same thing when we're older. It's okay. Okay. And so we repeat our stories because those are our stories. We don't, we don't, we're not going to make up stuff like, that's my story. That's what I did when I was in high school or college or whatever, you know? And so those are your stories. And so you, you tell those stories. And, and so let me just show you how history works. So grandpa tells a story to your mom or your dad that tell the story to you. Now, somewhere in there, let's say your mom and your dad wrote it down and they pass that document along to you. And that means grandpa to mom and dad, to you, that's two generations. So we got about 80 years there and we have one documentation. So we got one manuscript between 80 years. That's history. That's your history. That's your genealogy. Some people call it, but it's also called your personal history. And so that's how we get history. So we've got, now let's just see right now, what I'm about to read to you is we got John and Jesus who hung out together. Okay. Jesus died, descended to heaven after that. John continued to live on the earth for a long time. He was the only disciple who lived to an old age. All of the other ones were killed for their faith. Which, by the way, if this was all a lie, why would you die for a lie? They all died because they believed so much in what they were saying that they're like, I'm not going to recant because I saw him walk on water. I saw him heal the blind man. I saw him multiply the loaves and fishes. I saw him hang on the cross, and I saw him afterwards. So you can kill me if you want. They didn't back off of their faith. John, they actually tried to kill him too. You should Google this incredible story. But they couldn't kill him. So finally, he ended up just dying as an old man. But in that, he poured all of his knowledge about walking with Jesus, all of his stories he told uh, to a guy 
named Polycarp. Polycarp told all his stories about John and Jesus to a guy named Irenaeus. And now this is Irenaeus writing it down. Here's what he had to say. Matthew published his gospel among the Hebrews, i.e. the Jews, in their own tongue, when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, i.e. their death, which strong tradition places between the time of the Neronian persecution, that means Nero, Mark the disciple and the interpreter of Peter handed himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down the book, the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, this is a reference to John 13 and 21, himself produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. So this one outside author just talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all that they did. He confirms all of what they did right there. Now you say, well, okay, but Okay, I get it that that guy wrote about it and he wasn't in the Bible, but clearly he was a believer in Jesus. Were there anyone who didn't believe in Jesus that also could support the truth? In other words, like, you don't have to be a Tampa Bay Bucks fan to have to admit they won the Super Bowl. Is there anyone who was not a follower of Jesus? Yeah, let me give you one very famous example. His name is Josephus. Josephus is considered the greatest historian of Jewish culture of all time. Now, first of all, it's kind of funny. If you read his books, he actually said that himself, which I think is kind of funny. He went to the Muhammad Ali School of Humility. You know, he's like, I am the greatest. You know, so he let everyone know that he was the greatest historian. He wrote that at the beginning of all of his books, and then he, you know, gave us his history. So the book he wrote, the most famous one's called Antiquities. He was a Jewish historian. He was Jewish, and he wrote about the history of his people, but he worked for the Romans. So how do you talk about Jesus when the Jews weren't real crazy about him because many of them didn't think he was the the Messiah yet, until after he rose again. Of course, that changed the game, but, but many didn't believe that and, then, and still didn't believe it. And then on top of that, then he worked for the Romans and the Romans really looked bad in the whole story of Jesus because they're the ones who killed him. So how do you do this? If you want to be known as the greatest historian, you can't cave to pressure. You have to tell the truth. And so that, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. Otherwise, he's writing fake news. So did it happen or did it not? This is what he had to say. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus and his conduct was was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after, he was cruci- after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. What? He basically just said, he died and rose again. There's just a lot of people who believe that. A lot of people saw it. How do you deny that? Now, Geisler and Brooks in in their famous book, When Skeptics Ask, said this about Josephus. They said, the fact that neither Josephus nor any other contemporary of the apostles makes any attempt to refute the resurrection is significant. Now, there's a guy named Louis Gottschalk. He wrote a book called Understanding History. This is exactly how we get history. He said this, Conformity or agreement with other known historical or scientific facts is often the decisive test of evidence, whether of one or more witnesses. So if one or more witness sees you do a crime, you're going to do the time. All it takes is one or two witnesses to put you behind bars for your whole life. So how many witnesses saw Jesus walking around talking to people after he died, after he'd rose again? How many people saw him? First Corinthians tells us how many. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. Wow. Think about that. Over 500 people saw him 
walking around, talking to people. This could not be denied. This is what this means. The first one is this, the external evidence test. The Bible accounts of the resurrection of Christ are well supported by outside historical documents that were contemporary to the biblical times. It passes the external evidence test. This is only a few examples. There are so many more I could give you, but let me just ask you this question here, or let me just tell you this real quick. Have you ever noticed anyone who says, well, I don't believe Jesus rose again, and you ask them, why do you not believe that? They'll generally tell you someone told them. Who told you? I always like to dig, drill down that. Who told you? Oh, I had this professor one time who told me. You know, I had this friend or my, my mom or my dad told me. So I would say, cool, where'd they get that from? In other words, keep asking, keep drilling down. Don't let them off the hook that easy. No way. You're not going to blow off my whole faith that fast. How do you know that? Because I have evidence here that we've got first century writers. These are people who that recorded the history of their day and they all wrote about this. This wasn't a secret. Let me tell you something else. Did you know that there's not one document from the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh century, not one that refutes the story of Christ rising again? I mean, wouldn't someone have said this didn't really happen? But there's not one document? Because it was so public, you'd look like a fool to say it didn't happen. Kind of like the people who look foolish that try to deny the Holocaust. Like, really? You know how many books we have of people that lived through it, that were there, that saw people murdered by Hitler and his hideous regime? You can't deny that. There's just too much history. Or if you do, you just look like a fool. And yet there's not one document refuting that Christ rose again. Not even one. That's because everyone saw this actually happen. So let's now go to the second test of history. It's the internal evidence test. This is the examination to see if the author or authors discredit themselves. You guys staying with me? I know this is kind of heady. You guys with me? Yes. You're like, oh, man, I think so. <laughs> so here's the second one. It's the internal evidence test. This is like if I'm on the, if I'm on the witness stand and I, because I, had, I went to work one day and I get up and go to work and I look out my window and I see a, 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 someone murder someone, like literally right out the window. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that guy's he's choking that guy out. He, he's about to kill him. And I, and I see it as a witness, right? They're going to put me on the stand. Like, Did you see it? Yeah. Will you, will you take the stand? Will you testify? Yeah, absolutely. I saw the whole thing. Okay. So then I get on the stand. And so at this point, I'm going to get cross-examined. They're going to say, what time did you show up at work? I'm going to be like, oh, I showed up at, uh, at nine o'clock. They're like, wait, did you say nine? Yeah. Well, earlier testimony, you said 8.30. Now you said nine. Well, what does it matter? 8.30 or nine. It matters, sir, because the, we know that the guy was choked out at, at 8.55 a.m. So if you didn't get there till nine, then you couldn't have seen it. But then you said 8.30, you also said 9. In other words, my testimony is not consistent, so they're going to throw out my testimony. It's inconsistent. It's got, it's got contradictions. And people love to say this about the Bible. Oh, you know, the Bible has contradictions. My response always is, where? Tell me where these contradictions are, because they don't actually exist. Don't confuse contradictions with two, two different sides of the same story. So Matthew may mention one thing Jesus did, and John mentions another but it doesn't contradict itself. It just gives you two different angles. Just like if you were to ask each other at lunch after service what, what you got out of the sermon, you'll get two different responses from different people, but it doesn't mean it still wasn't the same sermon. It doesn't mean it's a contradiction. In fact, actually, it was exactly, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts were exactly perfectly alike, you would say they're just copying each other. And so the fact that they're a little different in their interpretations tells you they were really there at the event where Jesus fed the 5,000, for example. So I just want to encourage you that there are no contradictions in the Bible. Now, that's amazing when you consider the fact that there's 40 authors over a 1,000-year period of time that brought the whole Bible together, and there's no contradictions in that? That's a miracle in and of itself. So let's just dive right into this right now. 
talking about the Bible, whether they're contradictions or not. The apostles appealed to common knowledge about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, even to their enemies. If they would have been wrong in their accounts of Jesus, it would have been thrown back in their face, would have been shoved back in their face, right? Just like if I were to try to argue with you earlier about how the Cowboys were amazing in the Super Bowl, you would quickly argue back and be like, dude, you know what you're talking about. You didn't see the game, obviously. You missed the whole thing. What are you talking about? We'd be arguing very quickly because I don't have the facts. And so think about this. The apostles would actually make public statements about Jesus, and yet no one refuted them because they couldn't refute him because it really happened. And so check this out. Look at Acts chapter 2. This is Paul preaching publicly. He said this, people of Israel, listen. So this is like him going to the local mall, standing up on chair and saying, everyone gather around and listen. And then he's talking about something that just happened. So there'd be no way to, to get it wrong. People saw it. So that, this is what he said. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth in, by doing wonderful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. That would have been a great place for someone to raise their hand and go, whoa, whoa, no, we don't know. We didn't see any of that. I don't know what you're talking about. And I wonder if there was someone in the crowd that wanted to stick their hand and say, whoa, whoa, hold up, and, and try to argue back. But then someone else went, shh, what, what? what? He, he, he didn't perform miracles. And some guy was like, no, no, dude, dude, I saw it. He did. What? Yeah, yeah, shut your mouth, man. You look stupid. We all saw it. Remember Bob, the guy that was blind? He's walking around seeing now. What? Yeah, he was blind. Now I can see. Did you not see him walk on water? It was crazy. We all were freaking out. What? People saw this stuff. And if you saw a miracle, would you go home and make a note of it? Of course you would. And so they could openly talk about this stuff. Even the people who didn't like them, they couldn't deny them. In fact, look at Acts chapter 26. At this point, Paul is arguing with someone, a public leader, and there's a king present in the room, and he loops the king into this. This is very daring from this. Let me just let you know the word king. We, when we hear the word king, we think of all this majesty and all this glory. You know, this guy was really awesome. He's a king, and this is so neat. It's kind of like in, you know, London. Oh, what? No, no, nothing like that. You need a more picture like Kim Jong-un, because they used the word king back in the day, but we would say dictator today. Kings did what they wanted. Their word was the law. So they didn't like you. They would just, you know, that'd be it. You're done, right? And so can you imagine if I lived in North Korea right now and I just decided to put a giant sign out in front of my house that says, Kim Jong-un's big fat idiot. The next week he'd be like, what happened to Bill? I mean, I don't know where he is now. He normally drives to work every Monday and I noticed his car was in the bottom of a river and he's in it. What happened? I don't understand. Like that's what happens to you when you do that to a king, right? So Paul is making an argument about Christ. He's preaching Festus is there arguing publicly with him about it, like they're debating, basically. King Agrippa's there, and he loops King Agrippa into the conversation and then confronts King Agrippa directly. That's a good way to lose your head unless you're right. This is where the media gets the phrase, speak truth to power, because then even the powerful can't deny it. If, if the king said, I don't like what you're saying, off with your head, it would make the king look stupid because everyone saw what he was talking about. So he could do this. So look what he says. This is so cool. I love this. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. I love that line. So I just want to mention to all the students in the room, next time your parents say to go study, you can say, no, no, the Bible says too much study will make you crazy. I can't study. <laughs> okay. But Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak frankly, for I'm sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Whoa. If he would have been 
If you had been lying, if this wasn't true, King Agrippa probably would, it, this is how the story would have gone down. It would have been like, what did you say to me? Go get him right now. Come here. Off with his head. You want to recant what you're going to say right now, Paul? On your knees. This is your, one, this is your final moment right now. That's how it would have gone down. But he couldn't. So he says, King Agrippa, you know this stuff is true. Come on, man, you saw it. So what are you going to do about it, right? And what is King Agrippa's answer? I love his response. He said this. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can make me a Christian so quickly? What? So Agrippa is thinking about becoming a believer in Christ? See, the problem with that is the kings told everyone that they were, that they were gods. So if you make Jesus your God, then that's admitting you're not. But he could not deny what he saw. So the issue wasn't the facts. The issue was, what do the facts mean to me? Just like at the end of this message, the issue is no longer going to be whether Christ rose again. The issue is going to be now it's a fact. Now what are you going to do with it? Can I tell you something? There's a reason why people like to say that the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible contradicts us. And we're called to shape our lives like the Bible and quit trying to make the Bible shape into what we want it to say. If you're going to be a real disciple of Christ, you've got to shape your life to the Bible. And sometimes that's unpopular. There's always scripture that's out of style and in style. God's truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter what year it is. And so we're called to, to bend our lives to his truth and not require the, the truth to bend to us. What does this mean for us today? It means this. Number two, that the Bible accounts of Christ's resurrection have no internal contradictions. It passes the internal evidence test. And here is the final and my favorite evidence that your Savior really rose again from the grave. And so it's called the bibliographical evidence test. That's a big word, bibliographical. Say that, would you? Bibliographical. Big word, right? What does that mean? Well, books have bibliographies, right? That's their sources. And so when you see a new history book being printed, if you're like me and you're wondering, like, how many more books can you write on JFK? How many more books can you write about, you know, these, you know, Truman, you know, whoever, or you wrote about, you know, whoever, World War II? I mean, how many books are still coming out about that? Well, the reason why is because there's new facts coming out. And so you say, well, why would anyone buy a book about JFK at this point? I mean, there's so many that's already been written. Well, because, you know, what if Jackie Onassis had a sister and her sister uh, died finally, and, and when she died, her journals were passed down to her daughter or son, and then they had the boldness to, to open up the journal and, and actually tell the world what, what the Jackie Onassis sister, her JFK, say at dinner time one time that the family never told anyone, and so that becomes a new source, a new secret that comes out. That's a new piece of history. That's how that works. And so that's why new books even sell in history is because there's a new source they found. And so we always have to have good sources. So when people say, I don't believe Jesus rose again, I always say, what's your source? And when, the, and when I say Jesus did rise again, I don't believe that. I say, well, let me give you my sources. Let me give you why I believe it. And here is my sources. Here's some sources I'd like to show you that passes the bibliographical test. Remember we talked about grandpapa said something to your dad or your mom, then they passed down the information to you, but your mom and dad wrote it down. So that's one manuscript between two generations. So you've got about 80 years in one manuscript. So your personal history then rests on 80 years in one manuscript, right? That's actually good history. Sometimes people think, well, that's not enough information. No, it's actually plenty as long as that's been corroborated. You say, well, I heard my dad tell the story and someone says, I don't believe your dad. Well, first of all, you call my dad a liar. I don't like that. But my aunt was there, and she confirmed the whole story because she was there too. So I've got outside source confirming the inside source of my father that this is historically accurate. And I've got one manuscript of that story. 
So I know it's true, okay? And so that's how that works. So let's look at some manuscript authority, if we can, some evidence of manuscripts. So biblical accounts have to have manuscripts just like any other account. Like the reason why you know so much about World War II is because, you know, just a few years ago, we there's a few soldiers left, very few, uh, but there's a few left. And so we have that history. Many of you have an oral history from your parents telling you about the war. That's why we know so much about it. You know, but we're going to have to rely upon everyone who wrote all their stories down two generations from now when there will not be one left from that history anymore. So we'll be relying on what people wrote down. So let me give you a couple examples of some historical documents and what you call manuscript authority or manuscripts that have been passed down. Okay? It's called MSS. If you look this up, MSS stands for manuscripts. Okay, so Aristotle, you ever heard of him? Anyone heard of Aristotle in here? Maybe you've been to philosophy class. He's a very famous philosopher. Aristotle's poetics were written at, in 343 BC, and the earliest copy or manuscript, MSS, we have is dated around AD 1100. That's a 1400 year gap, yet no one doubts that Aristotle lived and he had a school of philosophy and he had a bunch of students. No one doubts any of that. And so that's where you, know, you get Socrates, Aristotle, all of those guys, right? Aristotle's history relies on essentially one document for 1,400 years, and no one doubts the history. And you shouldn't doubt it. It's, it's very accurate. No scholar doubts the historicity of this document. Then there's the Caesar's uh, writings of the Gallic Wars between 58 and 50 BC. Its manuscripts authority rests on nine or ten copies, MSS, those are manuscripts, dating a thousand years after his death, yet no one doubts Caesar's writings about the Gallic Wars. Now, the second highest authority we have on anything written from, this, from these dates is the Iliad. Now, we know the Iliad is a fictional story, but it's still a historical document that was passed down. It was a story that was passed down uh, throughout, the, throughout the ages. The Iliad is the second highest and therefore most legitimate bibliographically covered writing with 643 manuscripts. That's a lot of manuscripts. So how many manuscripts are there about the New Testament? In other words, how many manuscripts are there about the life and times of Jesus, his miracles? How many, how many manuscripts are there on him rising from the dead? How many manuscripts are there on the Old Testament? I mean, how many are we talking about? I mean, so the second highest of all manuscripts in all of history that we have is 643 copies. Before that, it's nine or 10 copies, which is a lot, by the way. So 643 is a ridiculous amount. So how much does the Bible have? Well, let me just give you a couple examples of what these look like. First of all, what are these manuscripts? What are they like? Here's, here's one, and obviously these are just papers. That are, these are copies that we Google imaged to show you what the actual image looks like. But you can go and find these in museums all around the world. So the first one I want to show you is, is the Rosetta Stone. It actually looks just like this, except it's not paper. It's on a stone. And uh, we always think, no, I know Rosetta Stone. That's a software, right? No, no, it's, it's not. That's what we think it is. But they based it on the actual Rosetta Stone, which is a, 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 a tablet that helps us decipher what hieroglyphics mean, which helped us understand the Egyptian culture and their history, which is how we can also understand part of the Egyptian culture's history is about Moses setting the people free from the Egyptians. So we have the history of that. Here's another document. The Rosetta Stone, by the way, was found in 1798. Now, this next one I want to show you, this is from uh, 1867. This is Hezekiah's Tunnel. And this gives us a story about 2 Samuel chapter 3. So the actual story in 2 Samuel chapter 3, someone dug up and found in uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. It's literally a tunnel that they named after him. That's where they found it. So here's another one that I wanted to tell you about. Uh, this one here is the Moabite stone found in 1868. It has a story uh, also. I'm sorry, the first one is 2 Samuel. This one's in 2 Kings. And so these are actual Old Testament stories that we have written about 
in their day. That's how we have these stories in this day. Now, this is probably the most famous one I'm going to hold up next. This is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyone heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This was a more recent one. This is 1947. There is so much information in the Dead Sea Scrolls that when it came out, it literally changed the course of history because it, it gave us so much information. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls had a complete book of Isaiah in it, the entire book. It also had almost all of the Old Testament. So many people converted to Christianity when they realized how much of it was historically accurate. Just shocked people. There is so much Dead Sea Scrolls. They're still finding pieces of it today. In fact, the last one I think was 2017. They found another Dead Sea Scroll. I mean, it's crazy. They're still finding it to this day. It goes on tour. Parts of the Dead Sea Scroll have been discovered by the uh, seminary professors at the seminary I went to in Fort Worth. You can actually go. They have a display of some of it that they have found. Uh, they also have it in the British Museum in the Louvre. You can go find it at the Museum of the Bible here in Washington, D.C. It's all over the world. I mean, you can find lots of fragments of the Bible. And so here's another one that was found. This is the Tel Dan inscription from 1993. Again, pretty recent. That's pretty crazy. The Tel Dan inscription actually has written on it the house of David. And this gives us a lot of the history of David because I can tell you one thing about kings, they like to brag on themselves. They like to tell all their conquests, who they, who they beat and who they conquered and how many times he whooped the Philistines, all that. They wrote it all down. So we have a lot of that from the Tel Dan inscription. And then one of my personal favorites is this one. And it's really hard to say, but I'm going to, try, I'm going to do my best to say this. Okay, it's Hamivtar. Say, say Givat Hamivtar. Givat Hamivtar. That, that's, that's a hard word to say, right? And so the actual, uh, what they actually found in 1968 was called Man Crucified at Givat Hamivtar. It's a recorded history of how the Romans killed people through crucifixions. See, crosses were not new. People died on crosses all the time for their crimes, but Jesus had committed no crimes. So he died for our crimes. But they go into great detail in Man Crucified that they found in explaining how exactly they killed people. They were very good at killing people. By the way, some people say, well, I don't think he really died on the cross. He just almost died. So it looked like he died and then he came back to life, but he really didn't die. <laughs> That's how I know you don't know history. The Romans were very good at killing. They knew how to kill. And so they were experts at it. And so this also helps us understand the book that Luke wrote in such great detail about how Christ died. You know, for example, why did they stick him in the side to check make sure he was dead? They learned that because they were Romans and Romans knew you always check there because on the cross, you didn't die from bleeding out. You died from asphyxiation from all of the fluid that would fill your lungs until you couldn't breathe anymore. That's why when Christ died, he pulled himself up one last time and said, it is finished and then let himself go because when you let yourself down, you let all that fluid fill up the rest of your lungs and it kills you. And so Luke knew that because he was a doctor but so did the Romans. So how do we get the Bible? How do we get this document? When people say to me, well, I don't, I don't believe this book. I don't, I don't believe the Bible. Well, that's because you're imagining it came like this. It didn't come like this. It came like this. Over centuries and centuries of people finding stuff, and finally a guy named St. Jerome put it all together in one book, and we call it the Holy Bible. This is how we get this. There's lots of fragments and inscriptions that have been found all over the Middle East, it all comes together to tell us the full history of Christ dying and raising again. So the question I have for you then is, how many documents do you think there are for the New Testament? How many fragments, how many manuscripts do we have passed down? I'll tell you how many. Over 20,000 manuscripts have been passed down, making the New Testament the most historical document of all of history. Your Savior really died and rose again from the grave. 
He really did. Those are just a few of the documents right there I wanted to show you, but there are literally over 20,000 documents that have been found. And can I give you one more piece of history, if I can, before we wrap this thing up? Just want to give you one more piece of, of, of how we know that Christ really rose again. You know what the last piece of evidence I want to give you is? It's, it's really pretty simple. It's Easter itself. Because if you look at the history of Easter, it goes way, way back until all the way A.D. 30. And A.D. 29, it didn't exist. A.D. 30, it existed. What is it about that year? Why did it suddenly begin? Oh, because this isn't a fable that was made up over time. It was an event. It was one moment that happened. In fact, the number one holiday, the number one Jewish holiday in the world for years was Passover. And then all of a sudden, one holiday finally passed it up. It's still a popular holiday, don't get me wrong. But the most popular holiday instantly in one year became Easter. Why? Because they saw a man who claimed to be God die and raise again. And you know what they celebrated the next Easter, the very next year? They would celebrate it, and the year after that, and the year after that, for years, you know what they would say? They would get together, instead of saying, hello, happy Easter, they would actually say, Christ is risen, and then the response was, Christ is risen indeed. And so I think we should celebrate this Easter by saying the same thing, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. You now have the evidence that backs up the fact that your Savior is truly the Messiah, he rose again from the grave. The truth is on our side. Would you take a moment right now and bow your heads with me as we take a moment to pray? And I know this is a very different message, and maybe you were hoping for something more about the story itself. And I understand that. Forgive me if this didn't match what you were thinking. But I want to encourage you today, for those of you who have doubts, have your doubts been solved? Have you come to the conclusion that I've come to that there's just too much evidence? There's just too much documentation for this to be made up. I can't get around it. Ah, the buck's won. Can't get around it. Too many people saw it. Too many people saw Christ rise again for this to be denied. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you never trusted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, maybe you're facing the same problem that Agrippa had, which he was like, whoa, 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 slow down. In other words, I know these are facts, but now I have to do something with the facts. Is that where you are today? Now that you know that Christ really rose again, there's really only one response. There's only one appropriate response, and that's to make him your Lord. You can do so by praying a very simple prayer. At all of our campuses right now, those who are watching online, you can pray this simple prayer with me right now, and Christ will come in your life. He'll save you from an eternity without God. He will reserve a place for you in heaven, and he'll begin to walk with you here on this earth. You can pray this prayer with me right now. We're going to say it out loud together. Just say something like this. You can say, Dear Jesus, I realize I need you. I believe you died on the cross for me. You paid the price for my sin, and I believe you rose again. Please come in my heart. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I repent of my sins. I put you in first place. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you just prayed to receive Christ a few moments ago, no one's looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed. The only person looking around now is the campus pastor. That's it. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you just received Christ, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, would you just lift your hand high? We just want to pray for you and thank God for you if you just prayed to receive Christ. Thank you. There are hands going up all across our campuses right now. Thank you. Thank you. We see those hands. Just hold those high. Would you do that? No one's looking around. Just keep your hand high. Thank you. 
Praise God. We see those hands. Thank you so much. Couples raising their hands. Individuals, praise God. Thank you. We see those hands. Children, men and women alike. Thank you. Hands going up all the way in the back. We see those hands at Rodfield. We see that hand at Padre Island. Praise God. We see the hand at Stone Oak right now. Thank you. Praise God. We see the hand. Those of you who are watching online, you can put it in the chat right now. You can just type, my hand's raised. If you're at churchunlimited.com, you can click hand raised. Just let us know about the decision you made to follow Christ. Just hold your hand high. The Bible says, if you're ashamed of me on earth, I'll be ashamed of you in heaven. Well, we're not ashamed. We receive Christ and we're excited about it. So if you just pray that prayer, lift your hand high. Thank you. We see those hands. Thank you. Keep that hand high. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. You can put your hands down now. Everyone here that, that hears the sound of my voice in this prayer, I want to encourage you today. Maybe you're a Christian, but you had some doubts. Put those doubts away. Your faith stands on truth with evidence. And yes, we're called to believe in a God we can't see now, but that doesn't mean there's not evidence of those who did see him, that did see him rise again. And so I want you to have confidence. And here's my prayer for you today. You say, I'm already a Christ follower, great message pastor, but I didn't need that today. Actually, I think we all did. Because here's what I want to encourage you to do. Because you know the facts are on your side, I want to encourage you to become more vocal. Become more vocal about your faith. We need more people that walk with God and walk and talk about God. Let's let the world know that our faith is real. We can stand on our faith. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In your name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Isn't God good? His word is so true.